Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by Bloom, helping new families find the products they need from pregnancy to preschool. Discover a personalized box of new goodies for your child, delivered to your doorstep every month. Right now, get 40% off a new subscription when you visit bloom.com slash momdad and use the promo code MOMDAD. That's B-L-U-U-M slash MOMDAD and use the promo code MOMDAD. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 21st, the Attacking Molly Weasley edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 6, Sam 4, and Wally 2. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is 10, and Harper, who is 7. Hi, Dan. Hey, Allison. On today's show, we'll talk about a new program at a New York City private school that divides children by race in an effort to combat racism. Then we'll talk to writer and entrepreneur Rachel Sklar about having a baby on her own and more broadly about single parenthood by choice. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, a listener call about red shirting for kindergarten and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, this is going to be a good one, Slate web designer Holly Allen will come on the show to fetch about the glut of year-end school obligations. It will be cathartic for all. It's going to feel so good. Oh, my God. I can't wait. (laughs) But before we get to that, announcements. Okay. Listeners, gas up your minivans. Dan and I are heading to Durham, (laughs) North Carolina for our first ever live show. We're flying, actually, but but you should come in your minivan. Uh, That's right. Mom and Dad will be fighting live and in person on June 7th at MotorCo in Durham, North Carolina, with special, very cool, cooler than we are, guest Mac McGon, co-founder of the indie rock label Merge Records and also Super chunk front man and dad we'll talk to mac about rock and roll dadhood which is sure to be full of triumphs and fails and mac will also play well i don't know well dan and i will sit there like the untalented parents we are we could edit no, live. No, you want to edit live we're gonna edit no I, I am 100 definitely gonna play a tambourine i don't care what mac says <laughs> i will be slinking off the stage live <laughs> uh anyway if you're in chapel hill or durham or that area what's the area called the triangle is that the what they triangle, call it yeah. Um, or want to make the trip, tickets are available now. Just go to If you're in Cary or Fuquay Varina or Wake Forest or Pittsburgh, please come on. <laughs> Just go to slate.com slash mom and dad live. And we really can't wait to see you guys there. I think it will be much easier for you to decide which of us is the better parent when you see us in person. Finally, finally, <laughs> I'll get the triumph I so richly deserve. Okay, Dan, do you have announcements? I do. We are launching an amazing new podcast series at Slate. It is the Slate Academy, The History of American Slavery. It's a nine-part series with Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion. Jamel and Rebecca talk to leading historians and academics, including Henry Louis Gates, Annette Gordon-Reed, and Eric Foner, telling the story of our country's foundational institution through the lives of nine enslaved people. And the history of American slavery is free to all members of Slate+. Plus our membership program. Episode one is live now. It is really, really, really great. It is one of nine episodes plus bonus podcasts, essays, 
book excerpts, meetups, and other things that will allow you to really explore this topic in depth with Jamel and Rebecca. Once again, it's free to members of Slate Plus and go to slate.com slash academy to learn more. And as always, please subscribe to Mom and Dad are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and keep spreading the word to parents and non-parents alike. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. Dan. I have a fail this week. It is a fail that I recognize myself doing in various ways over and over, like it was a very familiar fail. The deal this time was we were at a pool party this weekend. It was a birthday party for uh, a brother and sister combo, one of whom is Lyra's age and one of whom is Harper's age. So we were all invited, and Lyra and Harper swam around with their friends for hours and had a great time. And then at the end of the party, after we were all totally baked by the sun, Lyra couldn't find her shoes. Now, she is a very absent-minded child who forgets things and loses things all the time, and shoes are a particular problem for her and a bugaboo for me. I feel like every day she is like, where are my shoes? And I'm like, are they in the shoe bin? And she's like, they're not there. And I'm like, just put them where they're supposed to go. But this time, I have it on good authority from Alia that when they got to the pool party, she just put her shoes on the ground with all our pool stuff right by the picnic table. And pretty soon, uh, at this pool party, it becomes clear that almost certainly some other family just accidentally took their shoes home by mistake. That is, it is probably not Lyra's fault that the shoes are gone, but I could not stop fussing at her about it. because Not because I think that she probably actually did anything wrong about the shoes, but because I'm so annoyed that the shoes that we just bought are gone, and she has to go home barefoot, and I'm annoyed about all the other times that she lost shoes, and I go into this long thing about if she had just put her shoes into the bag, this wouldn't have happened, and she always does this. And she you know, reasonably notes that that's crazy, Dad, who puts their shoes into a bag at the pool. Anyways, the fail is that I was fussing at her like forever about something else, something that was totally different than the actual thing that was happening at that moment, which was not her fault. And so this was not the time for me to be like barfing my hatred of shoes all over her. All it did was make her feel like I was being unfair because I was being unfair. Uh, And I think this is something that I do a lot, that I let something that is built up over time all sort of boil out often at the wrong moment. Uh, So I think that was a fail and I'm going to try and do better. I've been there. I understand what that's like. Um, All right. I'll accept it as a fail. I have a triumph. Hooray. Uh, It is a Dan Coyce facilitated triumph. Um, So in a way, I triumphed. Yes, actually. Great. You taught me a valuable lesson. So yesterday I slacked Dan. uh, Slack is the workplace chat IM system thing we use at Slate. So I slacked Dan that my parenting fail this week would be that even though I had been promising Sam all year that I would go with him on his class trip to the circus, I was going to have to miss it because of work. In other words, I couldn't be a good parent because I had to be at work to record a parenting podcast, which... <laughs> the irony <laughs> is rich. right, yeah. <laughs> so all year I've been saying no to things. No, I can't come to the class trip to Prospect Park, and no, I can't come to the play. But guess what? I'm definitely going on the circus trip, just like I did with Harry. The circus is like my thing. Mom and Sam, we're going to the circus. But then when I realized that the circus would conflict with when we normally record our podcast... I thought, well, maybe John can go with Sam. And basically, my thinking was that I can back out on Sam, but I can't back out on work. I can't back out on Dan. Uh, And then Dan saved the day and said, I believe this is a direct quote, nothing bad will happen if we just record the podcast later. 
So here we are after 4.30 p.m. We normally record at like 10.30 in the morning. Dan and our producer, Anne, and our intern, Jesse, all willing to record late so I could go to the circus this morning, which I really love doing. I'm really glad I went and also glad that I could finally send the message to Sam that he is actually way more important to me than work. Or so, at, least the, at least this one time. He was, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I was more today. upset about it than he is, like, yeah. than he was. Because um, I, I had originally told him I wasn't going to go. And he was upset, but it was like, I more felt like, I think I felt in my gut, like, that's the wrong decision, Allison. So thanks, guys. And thank you for for making that choice. I think it was the right choice. And I'm glad that you got to happily sub- deliver news to Sam instead of uh, sadly delivering news that you couldn't go. That's great. Yeah. Good triumph. And he particularly liked it when I delivered because I was like, guess what? I am going to the, the circus. And he was like, no, dad is. And then I was and then I made a big deal about like, no, mom told my boss that I couldn't that I don't forget work. I'm co- Sam. I, I'm going to be with Sam. And then he really liked it. Great. <laughs> yeah. I quit my job to be with you, Sam. <laughs> All right, so we, um, last episode, uh, I asked you all, all of our excellent listeners, to send in your dream family overseas trips for our Paddington giveaway. You will recall that I really love the movie Paddington, which came out this last um, holiday season for many reasons, but one reason was that it does a really, really great job of making a foreign country seem both like a real place with real people in it and also like a super fun place to visit. And I want my kids to get excited about the notion of going someplace far away. So I asked listeners, I asked you guys, where do you wish that your family could go? And people sent in tons of great ideas for trips to Nicaragua or Ireland or the Ostia Antica, which is some amazing sounding place in Italy I've never even heard of, all of which I, I want to take my kids to now if, if I had but money enough and time. Um, but I'm sending Paddington DVDs to our two winners who both uh, sent in amazing adventures that they dream of taking with their kids. The first Paddington DVD goes to Jess Lee from Silver Spring, Maryland, who writes, we want to drive the Cape to Cairo road. It is long and will take us about four months, but that's what we want to do. Why? Because when my husband and I were living in Tanzania during my PhD research, one of my remote field sites was accessible by the super bumpy, rocky road that I love driving on. And I found out that the road was part of the Cape to Cairo road. And I thought that was so cool. During our time in Africa, we had lots of adventures. We were completely out of our comfort zone. We had to work together as a team. We took risks. We learned about how other people do things, and we met some really nice people along the way. Our time in Africa was also the first year of our marriage. The adventure and challenge of being on our own in a new place taught us to rely on each other and be open to new experiences, and this is what we want for our family. We've started a savings plan. We've begun to gather ideas for the trip. And when both kids are old enough to help change a tire, we are headed to South Africa to buy a land cruiser and start the journey. Our kids are two and a half and four months old, so we've got a lot of time to save up our money. So I love that, Jess. That sounds totally amazing. Um, so uh, I hope that that happens, and I hope you tell us all about it when it happens. Our second Paddington DVD goes to Jill Rush of Oklahoma City, who sent not an overseas trip at all, uh, but a domestic trip, but a really great idea nonetheless. She writes, I currently have a two-and-a-half-year-old boy and a seven-month-old girl and have traveled a lot with my oldest. I'm too scared for traveling with both kids. Sorry again, youngest kid. But when we get brave, and big if, if our finances and schedules cooperate, my husband and I would love to take a road trip through the 10 most visited national parks over the course of one summer. Great Smoky Mountain, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Rocky Mountain, Olympic, Zion, Grand Teton, Acadia, and Glacier. 
I love the idea of this trip having a real goal combined with an abundance of beauty that is probably unparalleled. I also hope that our kids might develop a true love of the outdoors at an early age, a love that my husband and I are just now developing. Are we crazy? Yes, Jill Rush, you are crazy. What a great idea. I'm going to send you a Paddington DVD. Thanks to all listeners for sending in your amazing ideas for trips, your dream trips. And I hope that all of you fulfill your amazing dream trips, uh, even the person whose dream trip just was, quote, Europe. But if not, just enjoy Paddington. If not, just enjoy Paddington. If you can't make it, if you cannot make it on the Cape <laughs> There's Chicago always Road, Paddington. There's always Paddington. <laughs> Okay, before we get to our first topic, uh, our first ad, Bloom. Starting a family is one of the major life events where everything seems to change, including the products you need on a regular basis. Learning about what's out there and what you as a parent actually want and need and like is very time-consuming and also important. Bloom helps and brings fun to finding cool new care products for your child by offering helpful product advice and the ability to try products at home before you buy. Bloom sends a monthly box of five full-size, high-value products to discover that are perfectly staged for your child's age, gender, and developmental stage. They pick each individual product for the child's developmental progress, milestones, and Bloom sends a 100% personalized box to every subscriber. To check it out, go to bloom.com, that's B-L-U-U-M dot com slash mom, dad, and enter the promo code MOMDAD for 40% off the first month of all monthly 3, 6, and 12-month plans. Shipping is free, and the Bloom Shop also has a huge selection of toys, books, and childcare products that can be added for free shipping with a subscription. So go to bloom.com slash MOMDAD, B-L-U-U-M dot com slash MOMDAD, and enter the promo code MOMDAD now. All right, on to our first segment. This winter, parents at the Fieldston Lower School in the Riverdale neighborhood of the Bronx got an email from their principal telling them that in a week their children would be required to declare their race and then to break into small, mandatory groups divided by race for discussions. Parents of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th graders who were part of this program had very mixed responses to the notion of their children being part of a progressive experiment in bringing race to the forefront as a topic of conversation. This week, Lisa Miller's story in New York Magazine, Can Racism Be Stopped in the Third Grade, explores the program and the controversy over it at Fieldston. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. So, Lisa, tell our listeners to start out with about Fieldston. It's an interesting school, and its racial makeup in particular is pretty unique. So, Fieldston is a very progressive private school. It's one of the most elite private schools in the country. It was started by secular Jews at the beginning of the 20th century, mostly for Jewish kids who weren't allowed into the best New York City private schools because they were Jewish. And it has always had this very sort of open-minded, progressive, humanist, ethical bent and has prided itself at being at the forefront of progressive issues since its founding, basically. And so even though it's a very elite school and even though the people who send their children there tend to be kind of ambitious New York striver types, it is also a school that attracts people with liberal values who want the kind of progressive pedigree that Fieldston conveys. And its racial diversity has changed dramatically in the last decade or so, right? Right. I mean, it has been, you know, for most of its history, a school for 
white Jewish kids, although all kinds of kids have always gone to Fieldston. In the first class, there were black kids. Um, But over the last 10, 15 years, it has become very consciously much more racially diverse. So now half the kids at Lower, which is the elementary, one of the elementary schools connected to Fieldston, are um, minority kids. Because the administration felt that, you know, the school in the Bronx should look much more like the Bronx. And so they were very activist about attracting kids of color to the school. And it's a and it's a change that most of the parents there are, are pretty firmly in favor of because they're parents who uh, who generally favor diversity in the place where their kids are. Absolutely, these are Obama these are Obama voters. They right. you know they're psyched to send their kids to a school that has a lot of racial diversity. So then, tell us about the experiment at the school and how these very progressive Obama voting parents reacted to it. Right. So a form comes home, as you said at the top. A form comes home and says, you know, what is your race? And then check a box. And these are liberal parents who were brought up thinking that, like, you're not supposed to identify yourself by race. In fact, sorting people by race is antithetical to what a good liberal does. And also, you know, these are young children who are already mixing and getting along and having sleepovers and learning and playing together in this incredibly, almost ridiculously utopian environment. And so, like, they thought, isn't the racial diversity experiment already working? Why are our children being forced to check boxes and separate into racial groups? Isn't that retrograde? Isn't that regressive? Isn't that like segregation and and before Brown versus Board of Education? And like people were talking about yellow stars and Japanese internment in the Soviet Union and all of these sort of atavistic memories of times in history where people were separated out because of race and how ugly that has been in our past. And like... Do we want to do that at a place like Fieldston? Now, the goal of these small groups where people would be collected up just with kids of their own race was to encourage open conversation, but specifically about the topic of what it is like to be the kind of person I am, right? Right. I mean, the way they talk about it is at Fieldston, they talk say authentic conversations about race. And what they mean by that is as liberals, as intellectuals, we're all very good at talking about race as a news event, as a matter of history, as a matter of justice. But we don't actually talk about it in terms of how we feel. And we don't say the unsayable things, which is that, you know, we live in segregated neighborhoods. We have few friends of other races, in fact. And these are all topics that we suppress or sweep under the rug while we espouse our liberal values. And I'm speaking here for, you know, in the voice of white liberals, but you need to know that at Fieldston, actually, the parents are very diverse. And so there were brown-skinned parents who opposed the program. There were white-skinned parents who supported the program. It was not just, you know, white liberals versus minority parents. I just wanted to make that I did. I had a question about that, though. I mean, you say that in the piece that it didn't, the reaction to the program didn't divide along, you know, clear racial lines. But I did get the sense from the piece that the majority of the black parents at least were not opposed. I, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy of or stratification of racial complaints and divisions in, in this country. And what the people who promote this kind of education say is, until you resolve the black-white stuff, you can't resolve 
the other stuff too. Um, I'm agnostic on that, but that is certainly what was happening at Fieldston, that there were a lot of black and Latino kids who felt like they were still, in spite of all of the progressive ideals of the campus, minority kids in a majority white school. They were guests at they were guests school. At, they were guests yeah. at their school. And their parents really wanted a reformation, like not just a Band-Aid, not just a program to help those kids feel better, but like a real cultural renovation of of the school. And that meant, you know, allowing their kids, all their kids to take more ownership and all the kids to be participants and all the families to be participants in this renovation, which was not something that all the parents felt that they had consented to. Yeah, there are really interesting stories in the piece of parents at the school, parents of color at the school talking about their experiences, their first times that they ended up in sort of in majority white situations for many of them. It was when they went to college and how what an alienating experience that was to be sort of thrown into that environment when they really hadn't been prepared for what it was like to be a a black person in a white world because they'd never had the chance to really explore these issues in conversation. And I think for many white kids, that that is a similar thing happens, but you know, in the obverse, where you end up in for the first time in your life, if you were raised in a very cloistered, lily white place, as as many many white kids are, the first time you end up in a in a truly diverse place, you don't have the language to address the real racial issues that are definitely going to come up. You because you've been taught your whole life that is you just don't talk about that stuff. That everyone's the same, and to even bring up race is impolite or or in fact like a a terrible thing to think about in light of all that the civil rights movement has taught us, which is all many, many kids know about these issues for years and years and years. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me about this program was that, you know, lots and lots of schools over the last 10 years have started these support groups, affinity groups for kids of color, even at at young ages, as young as this. But most of them are voluntary, which means that they happen after school or before school or at lunch. And what the director of the program said to me was... You know, and the white kids go to recess. Right. But, like, you can't have a conversation about racism in America and let the white kids go to recess. And you also talk about how, like, for many white, not just kids, white people, like, we don't see ourselves as having a race. We're, like, raceless because we're, you know, it's like it's the the norm. So the thing that makes people, like, gives people the willies, the parent body the willies, is that, you know— Everybody is required to have these conversations. Everybody is required to identify racially. There is an opt-out group, but that's the idea. And, you know, there's a real concern on the part of the the opponents to the program that, like, these little kids are going to have to talk about privilege and guilt. And, you know, they're too young for that. So that's their objection. But I think the larger attempt, which is to get everybody in the conversation is is an honorable one. So despite the willies that many people expressed, including in a very rambunctious parent meeting, the school went ahead with this program. And they're now coming in on the tail end of it that started this winter, and it's now approaching the end of the school year. And you were not allowed for privacy reasons to sit in on one of the affinity groups, but you did sit in on a larger debriefing of a bunch of students after the affinity groups. And what did you hear from the students about this experience? You know, it's funny because this conversation is so hot at the school and everybody's so upset and taking sides and it's really tearing the school up. And 
then you see a bunch of fifth graders, and they just look like fifth graders. Like, you see them as fifth graders before you see their race. You see how tall the girls are and how lumpy the boys are. And, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, my God, these are kids. These are just kids. And um, that was very, like, refreshing for me because I had been talking to parents for so many months. But what they do after they, you know, they come together in a mixed-race group after they've been in their little racial groups, and they talk about what they've learned. So, like, the Asian group said, when you're Asian, people, a lot of times people are confused about what religion you are. And they, you get a lot of questions about what's your religion. And we just want to say that when you're Asian, you could be any religion. You could be Hindu. You could be Buddhist. You could be Muslim. You could be Christian. So we just want to say that. And having sort of the weight of the group behind makes it easier for a group to then sort of present that to, to all the other kids. Yeah, it was like actually the what the kids had learned in the groups was sort of flashed up on a screen, on an overhead screen. So you mm. could actually read it and everybody in the group could read it. And then the black kids said, when you're black, people are surprised you go to Fieldston or they assume that you live in a crappy neighborhood in the Bronx. And we just want to say that, you know, some of us do and some of us don't. And it sucks that people are surprised that we go to this school. And then the uh, there's there's a multiracial group. And they said, you know, what people think about us really depends on whether we're on the Fieldston campus or not on the Fieldston campus and also what we're wearing. Because people make judgments about us based on what we're wearing and where we are. Um, So a lot of these insights are sort of extrapolatable to all the kids in the room. And the the whole thing was like how what you look like doesn't necessarily mean anything about how you are. And just sort of airing the idea that how people look is only part of the story. I mean, it's really interesting just because these, I mean, many of these insights are sort of you know, racial studies 101 for people who've been thinking and talking about this a lot. But these were never things that I heard when I was a kid, when I was in third or fourth or fifth grade. And these, and they, they weren't things that anyone I knew heard, black or white or any other race. And, you know, these are like these seemingly simple observations are things that I didn't even start to understand until I was like in college. And I really wish that we had had a program like this at my school when I was growing up because I think it would have done everyone at the school. And I went to a school that had a, that had many, many, many racial tensions um, between a majority white and a minority minority school population. And no one ever talked about it. It was just just endlessly there. And and I think to a large extent it's because there was no there was no program like this and no one would have ever dreamed of having a program like this. Right. I mean, you know, one of the things that the that the administrators at the school say is by middle school, what happens developmentally in middle school is that kids become very tribal, right? And you start building your identity around groups, like right. who, who you belong to. And so race, be- race becomes very salient at that moment. And so if you can intervene before then, like maybe you can help build those friendships across those tricky years. Um, because friendship is the best, you know, antidote to racism, but you, but it's not enough. One of the things a lot of the educators said to me was like, diversity isn't enough. You can't just put a bunch of mixed kids in a classroom and hope it will all go away. Like you have to intervene and help them, you know, build the bridges to each other because otherwise, you know, the the flux of life and society and culture just takes over 
And it's very hard to push that back. I think for our listeners also, it's, I mean, everyone should go read this piece um, on New York Magazine. And we'll put the link up on our show page. But there's also like a lesson in it for just like us parents who perhaps, you know, whether we'd like to bring a program like this to our school or not, like it's just a reminder in the, for me at least, in the way that I, you know, would like to talk to my kids about this stuff. Like there's stuff that can be taken from this piece that isn't just about this program at Fields. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, you know, there's these efforts are happening all over the place. And this one is bold. And this one, like, got a lot of people mad, which is why it was in the newspaper and stuff. Right. But any progressive-minded public or private school is playing with programs like this. This is a big movement right Are now. Are they going to do it again, you think? I think they will. I mean, I think they'll go back a little bit and refine it over the summer and figure out, you know, what they what they want to improve. But I think they will continue with it. Okay, great. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. Lisa's piece again uh, in New York Magazine is called Can Racism Be Stopped in the Third Grade? Thanks, Lisa. Really a pleasure. Thanks. All right, listeners, email us and tell us, you know, if you know about a program like this that is being launched at your school or has been running, do you like it? Do your kids like it? Do you wish your school was doing more to talk about these issues? Uh, send us an email at momanddad at slate.com, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. All right, more mom and dad in a moment. But first, here's a message from Happier, one of our sister podcasts on the Panoply Network. I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier. And in the latest episode, you can learn why you should stop reading a book. Plus, you can take a fun Know Yourself Better quiz to find out if you're an upholder, questioner, obliger, or rebel. You can subscribe to Happier at iTunes.com slash panoply. All right, Allison, before we get started on our listener call, uh, we got a lot of email after the last episode about me declaring in a offhanded comment that Molly Weasley is a terrible pop culture mother. So we got so many angry emails. We from... did. That was by far like the most common topic of emails we got after that show. Yeah, it was it was basically we got it was like 80 percent people trying to get free Paddington DVDs, 20 percent people yelling at me about Molly Weasley. No, I think it was the other way around, actually. <laughs> So, anyways, everyone wrote, oh, she protects her kids. Sure, she protects her kids. She's so nice to Harry, everyone wrote. Sure. But I stand by my declaration that Molly Weasley is a pain in the ass. She is a busybody. She treats her best children terribly. She is constantly up George and Fred and Ron's asses about bullshit. She's a total jerk to Fleur when she when Fleur and Bill get engaged. And she henpecks her poor husband, like, to death. Meanwhile... She fawns over kiss-ups like Percy and Harry Potter, for that matter, who is the worst kiss-up in that entire extended family. She could be a lovely woman. I'm sure she often is a lovely woman, but she needs to get a hobby that is not washing dishes or worrying, which are currently her two major hobbies. So have at me, listeners. Please tell me why I'm so totally wrong and why Molly Weasley is so great. Uh, I will note that multiple people wrote in to say that Lorelai Gilmore was a great pop culture mom, and they are right. She's way better than Molly Weasley. All right, I've said my piece about Molly Weasley. Allison, take us to our listener call. Okay, each week we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for us, call. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Which is what Molly Weasley is to Fleur Delacour. Oh, my God. Now on to this week's listener call from Carrie in New Jersey. I'm calling because my husband and I are facing a decision, one that we've seen a long time coming that we finally have to make, and it is whether or not to send our son to kindergarten this fall. His birthday is in September, and he will just be turning five then, 
in our district, the cutoff is October 1st. So the, this means he would be the youngest in his class, and there would be likely kids in his grade that are a year or more older than him. Well, in many ways, we feel he's ready now. He's been in daycare since he was a baby, and he's well-prepared both academically and socially, but he does have some minor issues with things like sitting still or staying focused on a task, although I guess all kids do. But I feel like he may struggle with these things more being the youngest. We mostly worry about the long-term effects of this decision. Most of what we read and hear about suggests that there are several advantages that older kids have especially when it comes to boys, like being seen as a leader, being more advanced academically, and being better in sports as they are more developed physically. He would also be behind his peers later in life when it comes to things like girls or getting his driver's license, and we just don't want him to feel like he's left behind his whole life. The alternative would be to keep him at the daycare another year where they have a full-day kindergarten program and then enter the kindergarten in the public school in the following year. But I feel if we go this route, he will likely experience some boredom over the next two years. And I'm not sure if in the end this would put him ahead of the game or not, which is ultimately our main goal. So what do you think? Should we send him to kindergarten this fall? Appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. You should send him to kindergarten this fall, Gary. Uh, First of all, the whole first half of your question, you articulated all the reasons that he's ready to go. You're not worried about him academically. You're not worried about him socially. He's not. You worry that like maybe he can't sit still, which is like every single other kid in kindergarten. Right. No matter if they're a year older than your son or not. Also, if you're mostly worried about the long-term effects, like not how it's going to be for him in kindergarten and first grade, but later on, there's actually a ton of research that shows that the benefits of delaying kindergarten, such as they are, fade out by middle school and that facing academic challenges early on is better for kids. There's also a really great article uh, in The Times a few years ago called Delay Kindergarten at Your Own Peril in which the authors argue that nothing makes a kid more academically ready than school. (laughs) Uh, I think the quote was like something like school makes children smarter and that nothing makes a kid mature like interacting with older kids. Uh, So that's like the research part of things. But I also think, and that stuff is compelling, but to me even more so is like the feedback loop you perpetuate in your own school and community if you don't send your son to kindergarten, Carrie. Uh, like people, I'm I'm sure several, many, many of our readers are going to write in and many of you have redshirted your kids, but like you only make it so much worse for everyone else. Uh, ultimately, like if your kid is the cutoff and that's when school says, your kid is after the cutoff and that's when school says like this is the, this is the age kid who can go to kindergarten and learn these things, then like that's it. Like there's no gaming the system. Why would you even want to game the system? Like you're... Uh, basically, yes, send your kid to kindergarten, Gary. <laughs> Wait, I'm glad you stopped talking just before you would say something that would get us one million emails. Yeah. I do think that uh, it's a good point, though, that the more people redshirt their kids, the more you end up with a kindergarten full of, like, hulking Second graders. <laughs> right. You know, and I don't think that that serves every, everyone that well. I don't. And I the don't kids think... who can't then, the kids that actually have to go because their kids can't afford to pay another year of preschool – then they're even younger and more behind. Carrie, I also think you should send your kid to kindergarten. I can offer my own personal experience, which is that I was the youngest boy in my class um, by a, by a pretty wide margin, actually, and I turned out fine. It did not 
stunt my academic growth. I did fine academically. My parents felt I was prepared for the grade that I was in emotionally and socially, and I basically did fine. I was teased no more than any other nerdy, weird kid would have been, um, and that was not exacerbated by being a year younger than everyone. I had a bunch of friends who could drive cars, so it didn't bother me that I couldn't drive a car. And I did just as well in sports as I would have done if I was a year older. Like, I'm sure there could have been advantages associated with me being older, but I did not regret at any point being younger than other kids. I did totally fine. And I think that is true of many, many kids whose parents do not redshirt them. And, you know, you hear a lot about people sending their kids who are right near the cutoff and then regretting it. And then they don't regret it if they redshirt. But you can't regret something that you that you just didn't do. I think in the end, it serves your school best. It serves your kid best, according to the research. And it serves your community best to have all the kids who are supposed to be in a certain grade be in that grade, if at all possible. And so I would also, I would agree with Allison. Send your kid to kindergarten. That's my official recommendation. She's not going to listen to us. Well, let's find out. <laughs> Write us back, Carrie, and tell us what she decided to do. Either way, keep listening to the podcast. Don't be annoyed. Okay, again, if you have a question for us, call 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, what Dan and I maybe were to carry. Okay, on to our second segment. Well, single motherhood overall has declined in recent years, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, birth rates for unmarried women over 40 have been going up. As fertility medicine has advanced along with women's money-making capacities and the social stigma of having a kid on your own has lessened, more women over 40 without partners are deciding to have children. Rachel Sklar, a writer and entrepreneur and the co-founder of The List, a network and media platform for women, is one of them. Rachel's a new mom. Her daughter is six and a half weeks old, and she's joining us from her home with her daughter in the background. We hope we hear a squawk, even though Rachel probably hopes we don't. <laughs> hey, Rachel. <laughs> Hi. First, just tell us what went into deciding that you could have a child on your own. What what were, like, the factors that you felt had to be in place? So I wish I could brag about my incredible foresight and what a fantastic planner I am and how I had all my ducks in a row before embarking on this, but the truth is I got knocked up the old-fashioned way. So <laughs> while everything you said is true about women fertility advances and, and women uh, over a certain age finally making the decision because it's it's more socially acceptable these days, blah, blah, blah. None of that really uh, played into my decision. It was, it was just kind of like, wow, I can actually have a child at 41. I was then 41, now I'm 42. Let's do this thing. <laughs> that, was, that was how I felt about it. But you probably, I mean, you know, to not be like the podcast that says shmashmortion, like you could, like we all have the option not to have a kid. So you must yes, have, you yes, know, you ha you did have to make the decision absolutely. to have, to have her. I knew for many years that I would have a child if the opportunity arose, even though I, this was, you know, not a planned pregnancy per se. You know, I had, I had been thinking about this for a long time and in fact had been in a relationship with someone older than me who definitely did not want kids. In that year, that provided a lot of clarity to me just in terms of the fact that I realized that I did want kids and I had to figure out if it was possible and how I could make it happen, if at all. So, and then after that relationship ended, I was still kind of like trying to figure out what I could do, how I could do it, how, how I could pay for it, all of that stuff. And, um, and then sort of met someone in a, in a very random fashion. It was a, you know, it was a relationship. It was a, you know, consensual and all of that. And, Lucky. Yeah, just lucky. That's all I can say about it. It was just very lucky. But um, so I always knew that I would, I would, you know, I would keep a child that I was going to have, 
But I will say that one thing that I really realized during my pregnancy, and even more so now that I actually have this child here, is, um, you know, this whole process has made me much more pro-choice. And I was already very pro-choice. Were there role models in your life of women about your age when you were younger who you saw making this decision to have kids on their own uh, in their 40s? Were there people who you could look to and see, oh, this is someone who did this well, this is someone who I can learn from, this is someone who I can talk to, or was this a totally sort of alien experience for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was. I didn't have any sort of single mom role models per se, but um, I had a lot of mom role models, and, and I've now experienced sort of all of my friends one by one, not all of them, but many of my friends one by one becoming mothers, and some of them as single moms. Um, you know, I this this wasn't. I didn't have any. The, the, for me, it wasn't like, oh, I don't want to have a child because I'd be doing it on my own. That never really played into it for me. I, I have to say, I. I'm kind of a late bloomer in most things in my life, and so I just kind of assumed I'd be able to do it eventually, and then all of a sudden, sort of like age 37, 38, I started realizing like, whoa, this might be a challenge, partially because a lot of people started saying to me, oh, you decided not to have kids, or are you worried you won't be able to have kids, <laughs> like stuff like that, or, you know, articles would, you know, very helpfully point out that about women's gain, you know, egg viability and declining fertility and all of that. I mean, the media is not shy about hammering home to women just how, you know, limited their options are, no matter where they are in life. So I didn't, this wasn't like a function of role modeling per se, although once it sort of fell me, uh, I started realizing just how not alone and not, you know, alien and, and, and not uh, unique I was. Uh, okay, I just have one last question. I I saw you actually talking on this about this on MSNBC. Hi, hi Ruby. <laughs> Say hi, everybody, Ruby. Like um, I saw you talking about this on MSNBC, and I think they were calling it like DIY parenting, and they're you know. Right. I think that's uh, Rachel Lehman Hope's phrase, actually. Okay. I just wondered if you like if you were if you felt like you were identifying with like a certain label, or if you want to just like burn them all, and you're just like a woman who had a baby. Uh, no, I mean because I'm I'm not just a woman who had a baby. I happen to be like a professional feminist who had a baby. So I have I have found hi <laughs> Ruth. I have um you know I'm very conscious of the fact that you know. It's, it's, these labels are meant to be addressed and, and contemplated and remade. So I have been sort of, ever since I got pregnant, I've been sort of proud to be whatever it is I have been, which is a woman of a certain age, that age being 42 right now, uh, who is single and who has a child and thinks that's awesome. Um, so the DIY parenting thing or mom's by choice or all of that. I mean, I'm easy with it. I, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all, it's all part of what I call the new normal that, that really, that's, that's, is how I've been experiencing this. And I can't tell you how many times I've received an email or, or a referral or whatever from someone who says, Oh, you have to talk to so-and-so because they're doing the exact same thing that you are. And, um, so I just I just think the paradigms are changing, and Ruby thinks so too. <laughs> yeah. All right, Ruby wants her mom. Thanks, Rachel. 
Thanks, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Bye. Bye, Bye Ruby. <laughs> we should make all guests bring their crying babies on the air. It really lends a certain urgency to the interview. Okay, on to recommendations. Dan, what do you have? I am recommending this episode a friend's parenting blog. It is called Baby Happy Pants. It is by my friend Amy, who lives in Durham. I have my fingers crossed, actually, that she will be at our live show, Allison, at Motor Co. But she has a lot going on right now. Um, like Rachel Sklar, she is also a uh, for I think she's nearly 40 years old, who decided that she was sick of waiting. And she got herself knocked up, too, although hers was with a vial of sperm, not an actual um, person. And now she is the mom, much to her surprise, of twins. Whoa. Arlo and Patrick, who are beautiful. <laughs> they are six, seven months old. They have faced a lot of medical challenges. They face them still. Uh, for example, Amy's Mother's Day present is that she finally got to take her six-month-old baby Arlo home from the hospital. Um, but she is a really, really good and funny writer. Uh, it is a great blog. I especially love it because it is a great old-school blog community. The commenters and everyone who's come to the blog to read really follow Amy's story and communicate with her in the comments and support her and back her up and help her. And it's uh, it's really great and loving to see. I really enjoy reading it. You should definitely visit and check it out. It is babyhappypants.com. I came into this recording, this show, without a recommendation. And then in the course of talking to Lisa Miller, thought of one, a great one. I, when I was younger, my parents sent me to this camp called CISV, Children's International Summer Villages. Uh, it's a camp that takes delegates from countries all around the world and puts them in one place where I went. It was in Unsa, Denmark. Uh, I don't know if that's how, really how you say it. And you so you go to camp with like these kids who you don't, um, you can't speak the same language as them. You don't look like them. You don't have really very much in common at all uh, at first. And you're all the kids are all 11. And the idea at this camp was like 11 is the perfect age. Like you're old enough to understand difference, old enough to like be curious about the world, but young enough to not already like have all of your, you know, sort of notions confirmed. I will say that I actually didn't have a great summer uh, doing this, um, but my sister did. My sister did it as well, uh, and I know so many people who have loved it. I think, whatever, I just, I wasn't, it wasn't great for me, but it's such a great idea. I wish I could go now. I wish I could go do it now. And there was actually, a, years ago, there was a Rebecca, Rebecca Mead New Yorker story about it. And I don't know, I like, check it out. I'm not, like, I'm not necessarily recommending that you all go send your kids to this camp, but you should go look it up and see if it might be something that your soon approaching 11-year-olds would uh, get a lot out of. I will totally check out the socialist indoctrination <laughs> That's what that it your is. parents sent you that's to. That's what it is. That you didn't even like that much. That was, Thank you for that recommendation. That was first that, then Zionist Youth Camp. Okay, that's our show. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman. Seriously, thank you for doing this so late, Ann, and to our intern, Jesse Chazen-Tabor. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Lisa Miller and Rachel Sklar and Ruby. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Allison. And thank you all for listening. <laughs> 